we got a, a sensitive subject to deal with today. But uh, again, those forms that you are completing, if you can pass those, you guys pass them this way, just funnel everything back back to the bar area. That would be great. Just do that real quick. I have to allow you to do this or I'm not going to get them. All right, so as you're doing that, let me preface this uh, message with, if you weren't here last week, if you weren't here last week, you may receive part of this out of context, because we did a whole introduction, I did a whole introduction of 1 Timothy, this letter that Paul has written to Timothy, his mentor. And the reason Paul is writing it, he's actually left prison from Rome and is on his fourth missionary. They didn't have any enough evidence or anything to convict him of his crime that he stayed there for like a couple years. But uh, he was released and he traveled several different places. Just go back and listen to it. But he ended up in Philippi and got a, a report from Timothy about the church in Ephesus, how it was messed up, how the women were out of control and gossip and everything else, and part of it was stemming from Rome, and yada, 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 and he, Timothy's just like, Paul, I need you, I need you, and he's like, well, I can't come right now, but I'm going to send this letter, and so this letter kind of answers some of the things that Timothy had stressed to Paul, like, it's messed up here, what, what you once taught here and was received very well has now been distorted. It's being distorted. And so that's where we left off, and that's where we uh, pick up today. Um, and Paul Paul's starts here giving his testimony. But I, I think it's important that you know, obviously he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy knew Paul very well. So why in the world is Paul giving Timothy his testimony again? Because Timothy knows it. But he knows this letter is going to be copied and copied and repeated and repeated, even though it was written personally to Timothy. Because Timothy's going to get it, and he's going to say, hey guys, this is what Paul said about the situation here. And he reads it. So Paul starts in verse 12 of chapter 1 with his testimony. I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry and even though I was formally I was formally a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, the Lord Jesus appointed me to be a minister of the gospel, of the good news, even though I blasphemed, I was a persecutor, and I was pretty arrogant because he was a Pharisee. When you say persecuted, when Paul says he was a persecutor, he's literally talking about hunting down Christians as if they were animals and killing them. He was a bully. He was mean. 
That's who he was. And Paul is literally, at this point you have to understand, Paul is describing his life before his conversion experience. On the road to Damascus where this light blinded him and he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and asked for forgiveness of all of his sins one time. And it was done. He's talking about everything that happened before that. He says this, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. I had, in my former way, I didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so I was, I was ignorant. I was stupid. I did things that I absolutely regret. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul received grace first. He received grace. What is that? That's salvation. It's that he came to see Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior. He received this free gift, free gift of grace. And along with that, when he received that grace, what does it say he received? He says, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So once the grace was bestowed on Paul, all of a sudden he had faith, and out of that faith he was able to act in love. They all go together. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. It's the only time, it's the only time Paul refers to himself as a sinner. Did you hear that? It's the only time Paul refers to himself as a sinner. And when he refers to himself as a sinner, what is he referring to? His former way of life before his conversion if you took all the sinners in the world, which is everybody, when you're born, you're born with a sinful nature, and it was natural for you to sin from Adam all the way to the end, everybody sins. And he's literally taken that whole lineup of everybody and said, in the, within the sinful nature realm, I, I was the worst. I, I was worse than Jeffrey Dahmer. I, I'm the worst than Hitler. I, I, I'm the worst. I'm the chief of all sinners. If you want to compare me with anybody, man, I was, I was killing Jesus lovers. And so you have to understand, this is the only time he refers to himself as a sinner. We, we can go through 7,500 verses whenever he talks about believers, which is you in this room, those that believe in Jesus Christ as your savior and lord he calls you saints he calls you holy he calls you redeemed there's far more verses in the scripture that talk to you about your life after conversion and calls you holy righteous redeemed forgiven than this one verse that refers to paul and about his former way of life so don't ever refer to yourself as a sinner that's not your identity yeah you sin i sin i still sin 
It's not my nature to sin, but my true identity is I'm redeemed. I am a holy person. Yeah, I mess up. I make mistakes. I make bad choices. I still chase my flesh occasionally. I get it. But that's not who I am. Because Jesus redeemed me. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. This is a quote from Augustine. He says, God does not choose a person who is worthy, but by the act of choosing him, he makes him worthy. Like, I was made worthy. Not because of anything that I've done. Not because I've studied and prepared and set up here ready to present, but because Jesus died on the cross and I believed that he forgave me of all my sins and now that he's my savior he made me worthy he did it not me he says now to the king eternal immortal invisible the only God be honor and glory forever and ever amen that's the end of his testimony and then he writes personally to Timothy he says Timothy my son that's the way he views him it's his brother, but he's like, ah, I've taught you the ways of Jesus and the good news and the gospel. He says, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you. We don't know about those prophecies that were made about Timothy going into ministry, but most likely Paul is referring to some kind of experience in Timothy's early days Whereas he was recognized by the local church with special gifts, the gifts of encouragement, the gifts of teaching, the gifts of presenting the good news. And so he was probably at some point received some clear recognition that he was going to be a part of this ministry. So that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. Don't forget what has been prophesied about you, what has been prayed for about you that you are called to the ministry, that you are called to tell the good news. No matter what you do, Timothy, no matter how you mess up, you have this calling on your life. He says, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked their faith. There's always going to be distractions and distortions in teaching the scripture. There's, there, there, there's always going to be. There, there has been, and there is today, and there always will be. This book gets distorted. Someone said this morning, you can make this say whatever you want it to say. You take a piece here, and a piece here, and a piece here, and you can come up with your own personal agenda, and you can make it work. There's always going to be distractions. We say you have to have a biblical worldview. Well, what's your interpretation of the Bible, first of all? Yeah, biblical worldviews, I, I totally agree with that, but man, how are you interpreting this scripture? That's, that's the question that I have. What's the filter? He's like, 
Timothy, stay the course. People want to ruin your faith. People want to ruin this message. People have other agendas that they want to push. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. That's pretty harsh. <laughs> Let me explain that. Sounds pretty harsh. He's literally gone to uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander and said, hey guys, what you're teaching, and later on, I believe in Second uh, Timothy, he talks about that they were talking about how the resurrection has already come for the believers. And it was a little bit distorted. He says, you need to repent of what you're teaching because it's not true. And it's throwing everybody off. And they chose not to repent. And so now they're damaging the faith of some of the believers. So Paul has no other option and he says, I'm going to uh, deliver you over to Satan. I'm going to hand you over to Satan. I do that. I do that. Because I invest and I invest and I invest and I love and I care and I forgive and I teach yet people refuse to listen. And so I take my love, my care, my time, my energy, and I leave and invest it in other people. And if you choose not to listen, if you choose not to listen, you're going to go down this path. You're going to go down this path, and I'm, there's nothing I can do. I just let you go down that path. I'm literally handing you over. You, you're making your own decision. It's not like I'm pushing them towards Satan. Like. You, you do your thing. You do your thing. I'll be right here when you're done. I'll be right here. You, you go do your thing. That's literally what Paul's saying. It's like, you can go down this road, but one, don't you hurt this group right here. Don't you, you're, you're out of here. You're not doing this here. I'm not going to let you influence these people to understand the goodness of God at this time. And literally, Paul's saying to Timothy, make the best of your time and your energy. And then he says this in chapter 2. He says, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Again, this is where we get our, our guides for prayer. <laughs> all these things. We have to do all these things to pray the right way. And it's like, no, he's just like saying, this is, this is all part of like what Angela was saying, just talking to God. We literally are praying for the ladies that are going to this banquet and the crisis that they're going through, that it's going to change the weekend. Okay, so Lord, you change the weekend. You, you put power in the weekend. And that's literally all he's saying, and they're giving thanks. But first of all, he says, first of all, then, in reference to the two men, two men that had been turned over to Satan because of their lack of repentance, as he says, if that's the case, we're, we're going to go out and pray now. We're going to pray for these two. 
even though they're not listening to us, we're going to pray for them. He wasn't, he's not outlining church organization here, but he's literally confronting errors and the heresies that were already underway. And he said, first of all, this is the first thing I want you to do. I want you to pray. Pray for these people. And he says, I urge the petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Not just these two, but for everyone. Everyone. Just pray for everybody. You said it. Pray for everybody. He says, oh, here we go. Verse 2. For kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Remember what was happening at the time. The godless emperor Nero was on the throne in Rome at the time. And yet the believers were supposed to pray for him. We're on the verge of World War III. And Paul's saying, pray for Putin. Pray for Zelensky. Pray for your leaders. Those are in authority. I don't care what you think about them, but first of all, pray for them. There's nothing different happening back then that's happening right now. It's the same. How, how do we deal with it? We pray for them. Even when we can't respect the men or the women, they, didn't, they, they, they lost respect for these two men. But he still said, pray for them. We care about them. And really praying for them is our own good. To live in peace with ourselves. He says, this is good. And it pleases God, our Savior. Because our lives, our lives would be based upon respect and love. Again, I can't affect what those leaders do. Other than pray for them. I can't tell them what to do. I can't change their mind. I can't make decisions for you. <laughs> this is good and it pleases God our Savior. He, if you say, I can't respect, I can't respect, that, that's on you. The eye comes back to you. You miss this, and you live in torment, and you totally miss the peace that was intended. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The term, all, who wants everyone, verse 4, it, it goes back to verse 1 when he says, pray for everyone. So literally, he's like, pray for everyone. This is meant for all. It's the same group. It's the petitions includes all human beings. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. It, it includes all people without distinctions of race or social standing. It's everybody. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, the man. 
the mediator. It was necessary for us to have a mediator between our sinful nature and God. And he took care of it. And then he says, and mankind, between God and mankind, that Jesus came here as, on earth as man and he could identify with us. He had emotions, he had experiences, he had, he had bad thoughts that he had to decide whether to act on or not act on. And he chose not to act on. He was perfect. He fulfilled the law perfectly. It says, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Again, John three sixteen that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He says, for this, I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Just think about this. If God did this for Paul, then certainly there's hope for everyone. Right? The guy who hunts down Christians and kills them, if, if he's doing this for Paul and makes him the leader of the Gentiles and coming to faith, man, there's hope. Okay, here we go. I hope this is happening right now. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. (laughs) Lifting up holy hands. Rick, the pastor's on the front row. Lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. With holy hands, talking about morally pure hands. Not in dispute with others. this is a, a posture in prayer. I get it. But he's not saying that you have to, as Angela would say, talk to God in a posture of prayer. Our traditional posture of prayer of bowing the head and folding the hands and closing the eyes is nowhere in the scripture. It's not. Actually, there, there's a lot of prayer postures that are found in the Bible standing with outstretched hands in 1 Kings 8.22, kneeling in Daniel 6.10, standing, Luke 18.11, sitting, 2 Samuel 7.18, bowing the head, Genesis 24.26, lifting the eyes, John 17.1, falling on the ground, Genesis 17.3. Try to do all that at once. Doesn't even make sense. But sitting here, with my head up and looking at you and praying is something I do almost every day in public. I've gotten to the point where I don't even say, can I pray for you? It's like, Lord, I trust you right now. I trust you in the lives of my friends. I, I, I can pray that way. It's not, the posture is not the important thing. It's the posture of the heart. That's, my heart is bowed to the Lord. I sing from the heart. Verse 9, it says, 
Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. All right, all you ladies, no, just kidding. (laughs) Acceptable standards of modesty will vary with place and generation. In Rome, the idea that these women were wanting to be in control and they were dressing so scantily just that they were described as looking as prostitutes was traveling, was traveling and was happening in Ephesus. Paul, Paul's really like saying... Just, just dress like you normally do. You know, sometimes you, you can even see through classy. It doesn't have to be this direction, but sometimes you, you can see through the classy look as well. It's like, where's their heart? Paul's point is that genuine faith in God should display itself in holiness, not in what we wear. He, he did not forbid the use of nice clothing or ornaments. He just, he really urged a balance with the emphasis on modesty and a holy character. And here's the thing is, women will pursue women. Women will watch women and they'll do what other women do. Men do the same thing. So he's literally saying, do you want to be pursued because of your style or your behavior? Do you want to be, okay, do you want to be pursued because of your identity in Christ or your identity in things? What is it you want to be pursued for? What is it that you want people to look at you for? Do you want to be pursued because of your maturity and wisdom? We can't ever underestimate the important place that godly women play in the ministry of the church. Hear me now. Women are important in the church, and they always have been. So if you're taking something from Paul, not from me, but from Paul's letter here, and distorting it into something that it's not... The gospel message had a tremendous impact on them because it affirmed their value before God and their equality in the body of Christ. That we're all equal. The, it, the scripture says that we're all the same. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that lives in Shelley's mortal body, that lives in my mortal body. It's the same. Now, granted, the women had a low place in the Roman world, and they were fighting that. But honestly, the gospel changed that. The gospel did. It said, you're equal. There were devoted women who, who ministered to Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry. You go to Luke 8, chapter, or verse 1 through 3. They were present at his crucifixion and burial. And it was a woman who first spoke about the glorious news of his resurrection. In the book of Acts, we meet Dorcas, Acts 9, 
verse 36, Lydia, Acts 16, 14, Priscilla, Acts 18, 1 through 3, and godly women in the Berean and Thessalonian churches in Acts 17, 4. Don't tell me that women aren't important in the church. Just this week, the Southern Baptist Convention unfellowshiped five churches because of women pastors. Not going there. The same thing that's happening back then is the same thing that's happening today. Paul greeted at least eight women in Romans 16 and Phoebe who carried Roman epistle to his destination. She was a deaconess in a local church in Romans 16.1. Many believing women won their husbands to the Lord and then opened their homes for Christian ministry. Don't tell me that women are not important in ministry. Verse 11, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Silence, that's an unfortunate translation. (laughs) Because it gives this impression that believing women were never to open their mouths in the assembly. This is the same word that is translated as peaceable, peace. If you think about what Timothy had said to Paul, and man, there's all sorts of gossip going on, and I mean, you, you may have been in churches where that was the thing. He's like, they just need to be quiet. Like, stop this whole thing. He's not demanding a physical silence, but really a teachable spirit here. They they just need to change their spirit. And then you get, that, you get that word submission, that all of a sudden in our society, some submit and submission has become just a negative word. Like, you can't submit. Everybody in here submits. I'm assuming everybody in here is going to pay their taxes. That's an act of Submission. But we've somehow termed that submission is a terrible thing. We've totally distorted the idea of submission. It's not about rank of the role. It's not about rank of value or ability. You have to ask the question, submit to what? Submit to what? Those who are in biblical authority? There, there's obviously leadership here in this room. First of all, it's Jesus. It better be Jesus. And then I'm appointed a leader. There's elders. There's deacons. Not a assigned deacons, but deacons basically a servant. There's a team that comes in here team of deacons every Sunday morning and sets up this room. You don't think that Pinheads leaves it like this every Sunday, do you? They bring, they go pick up the donuts and make the coffee and we've got all sorts of deacons in here. 
There's all sorts of authority in the room. And, and, and here's, here's the issue. Here's the issue that we... Oh, man, I'm running out of time. Uh, we teach freedom in here with the gospel. But sometimes it gets taught as freedom with the flesh rather than freedom with the spirit. And that's when everything runs amok. And here we go. Verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. (laughs) It's not a rule. It's not a law. Paul says he does not allow it. I do not allow a woman to teach. What is his reasoning? Because women are permitted to teach. Older women should teach the younger women in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Timothy was taught at home by his mother and grandmother, 2 Timothy 1, 5. But in their teaching ministry, it's basically he's saying, you must not lord it over the men. There's nothing wrong with a godly woman instructing a man. There's not. You go to Acts chapter 18, verse 24, watch this. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, he was competent, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. Jesus up until that point. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue after Priscilla and Aquila heard him they took him aside. They took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Ooh. Like, Paulus, you don't know everything that happened in Jesus' ministry, so let us just come over here and we'll tell you, fill you in. And he learned from them. And he taught what they taught him. So don't tell me that women can't be teachers. It's scriptural. But the woman never assumed authority in the church and tried to take the place of man. She should exercise quietness and help keep order in the church. That would be referring to the gossip in the church. Let me explain that a little bit more here in a second. Let me get through the last two verses. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. (laughs) But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. She will receive fulfillment through her role as a parent in the household. I'll do this real quick. I've said this in here before. Uh, when I was doing youth ministry for 15 years, the best way for me to do ministry was to invest in men. Men that love Jesus. And if these men would go invest in my high school guys, they would show up and they would, it'd be awesome. And if my high school guys are strong, they're going to attract high school girls. 
And if my high school is strong, they're going to attract junior high students because everybody wants to be like them. Makes sense, right? That's the way I pretty much ran my student ministry. It's pretty much the same way in here. We have a strong group of men. And the women are attracted to these spiritual men. It's the same thing. It's not any different. And now, it's also how I lead my family. I'm going to ask Corey to come up here real quick. Put him on the hot seat. This is my son. He's 29 years old. bring it down or hold it either okay. I wasn't uh, sure I was going to make it up here I was watching your timer I know I know I've got the red light on here right here uh, I, I I talked with Corey last night so we'll do this real quick I talked with Corey last night and I just asked him these questions I, I typed them up so he would remember what he said so they're all right here in front of you but you can, you're free to like adapt and change but Corey how would you describe how your mom and I manage our family. I, I struggled with that question. Uh, the, the first question I struggled with. Um, I was going to say, I, I, last night I was talking about when things escalate and just like the world, when things hit the ceiling fan and things go out of control, that's when I see like my dad really step up and kind of take charge in the situation. Um, He's a he's a good leader in that aspect and just being able to bring the the peace and comfort. But I also see how in that time, you know, my mom allows him to take that control and do that kind of stuff. But on a day to day basis, I also see my mom, you know, step up and take control over things too. So they have that that equal balance and and give and take um, in the relationship. Uh, who's the teacher in the household? It depends on what's being taught. Um, I feel like as a as a kid, I, I saw my mom more as the teacher. You know, she's taught me a lot of life things. You know, I, I wouldn't know how to make food myself, clean my clothes. She even taught me, you know, Bible stories and like the basis of just you know what it is to have a relationship with Jesus. And then as I grew older, you know, and she also taught me how to drive a car and that kind of stuff. But as I grew older. Um, and and I, I wanted to, to kind of dig deeper into things. I would say when it came more to like theology teaching and that type of stuff, it definitely relayed on on you. Um, and mom was was there for that too. But that was something that that you had a major more focus on. And then, you know, just teaching when it comes to fixing things or when something breaks, that was also something that I would rely on you on. In uh, what is the one thing? that you think defines our marriage? Well, besides the the obvious answer, I'm not trying to come up here and say the obvious answer and say like... Jesus? Jesus, identity in Christ, and that kind of... Because I, I would say a lot of people in this room would, would see that already, but when, one thing that I see is that you guys are, are like-minded. Um, you're, you always make sure, like, you're one flesh, so there wasn't any description for, for me as a kid that... It wasn't like mom thought one way and dad thought another way, but you guys who always 
had the same thought. You know, if, if you said no, it's, there was no point in going to mom and see if she would say yes. <laughs> True. Uh, what is the one thing that I personally could work on in our marriage? Also a difficult <laughs> question for a son to come in and say, well... Um, Well, you and I are a lot alike, so I, I see this for myself as well, but I the love languages and that kind of stuff, for me, it just goes back to maybe like words of affirmation, um, being able to provide that to mom. It's, you know, some people need that, some people don't need that, but I know how mom works, and you know how mom works, but you also know the types of love languages we like to give, so... You actually said you were never ooey-gooey with mom. Yeah, yeah. That's the words I used last night, is being ooey-gooey. Yeah. Not in front of you, though. Yeah, maybe you are not in front of me. I don't know. (laughs) I should interview Michelle on that question. Uh, Yeah, thanks for not doing it. Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What would it look like if mom was the leader? Um... I don't think it would it would be bad. I think that there would still be like right decisions being made and, and sent in a, in a good direction in, in life and the family. But I think the majority of the time it would feel not natural. And that may just be because that's not how it, it was from the beginning. So maybe if it was from the beginning, it would be more natural. But I definitely think that you would – I know I was getting there. I definitely, he's pointing out the notes, I definitely think that you would, you would shut down. Um, and, and that's when it would start to be weird, because if, if, if she was the leader, I think it would definitely shut you down. And then if you were shut down, there would be this sense of not comfort, not peace, and, and that kind of thing. So, oh, What is the one thing that has been modeled that you want to carry on to your family? I actually forget what I said about this one. I have things coming to mind. I think it's it's important for me. I mean, I I saw a lot of things modeled, I feel like, correctly, and I was thankful for for me and Chloe and, and raising us. But, you know, one thing was I know you guys had your tiffs and you had your problems, but I felt like that wasn't always displayed in front of me and Chloe. You know, it was handled at, you know, separate times. You know, so, and I think that just brings back to, you know, keeping the, the peace for Chloe and I in the household, especially as kids, and, and you and mom figure out your own things in your own way. And that was kind of, I don't necessarily say, like, done behind curtains, but it was done in a way that, you know, is between you two and done in a respectful manner. Yeah. What was the one thing that was modeled that you don't want to carry into your family? Like, I'll never do that when I'm a parent. I didn't. I didn't have an answer for this last night. Um, the only. Uh, but you slept on it. No. <laughs> no. I mean, you guys. I got dragged into a lot of church things as a kid. That was that was this was my answer last night, you know. So I kind of wish, like maybe I would have been able to explore a little bit more in other things, extra curricular activities and that type of stuff. But not that I didn't enjoy being part of church. I, it's hard for me to say because I also think that had a big important aspect on my life. So I wouldn't want to take that away either. Um, but I also think I, I got to miss out on some opportunities because of that. But 
That that one, I'm sorry, I still don't. I slept on it. Need at least 24 hour notice to answer that question. Uh, would you say that your mom submits to me? Yes. Uh, is that a bad thing? Uh, no. Um, Why? I would say there's submission on both sides, but I would say it's probably more that she submits on on your side. I think it comes down. I mean, when you have a a family, a family of two, a family of three, four, five, six, you know, ultimately you're going to have a bunch of people who have opinions and you're going to have people that want to do certain things. And it's going to be hard if opinions are split, you know, and there's no, there's no leader, you know, to guide them. And that's, again, going to cause problems and uneasiness. So if there's a person that can lead someone, you know, there's going to have to people that submits to someone. But I also, the person that's leading also needs to, you know, submit to the people that are under them, you know, and understand what their desires are. Yeah. Otherwise, they're not going to be an effective leader. Yeah, I think there was a, a, we didn't talk about this, but there was a significant conversation, I think, when you were like 11 or 12 years old. And he said to me, you think that you're going to get my respect by yelling at me, but it's not going to happen. And I went. And I think our relationship changed after that. You know, I still yelled at him, uh, but I, I think it changed because you, you, you know, even as a twelve-year-old, I was able to like submit to my own kid and listen to what he had to say. It's uh, it's kind of a big deal, but I appreciate you and I love you and uh, thank you for coming up here. I love you too. All right, go sit okay. down. <laughs> No, no, no. Do you have the results from your... She, wants to, she thought that she was, I was calling her up on stage. I should do that sometime. Goodness. Maddie, what is all this? The top five... Okay. So... I'm assuming I'm reading this right, but the top five, uh, where's the man-woman one? Oh, here it is. Top five, you said, this is what you said, strong, leader, provider, hunter, uh, hard-working, protector, muscular, uh, stability, it went on. Uh, women, loving, caring, nice, compassion, beauty, uh, nurture, giver. Uh, then the top five for uh, the husband was leader, protector, provider, loving, faithful, trustworthy. The wife was loving, supporter, helper, nurturer, kind, faithful. Your top five for father was leader, loving, teacher, protector, Strength for the mother was loving, nurture, caregiver, teacher, supportive. We were created differently. We were created with specific roles. Everything that like Paul's saying here, he's not demeaning women he was he was literally 
touching on a subject that was an issue in the church. To this day, I will say that I'm the spiritual leader in my house. That that's my appointed responsibility. I'll take it. I'll take it. Doesn't mean I'm better than Michelle at all. It's just a role. And it's biblical. If you don't think like I do, then maybe you need to follow somebody that does think like you think like you do. But in in this place right here, I I believe there is a distinction between the man and the woman the husband and the wife, the father and the mother. We're given roles. No one's better than the other person. Even on this platform, we've had women teachers up here. I am not opposed to that. Not. It's a tough, tough thing, and we obviously we're dealing with it in the world right now. So what do we do? Lord, I pray for wisdom. I, I pray for uh, your peace. I pray that we... Uh, I pray for Putin. I pray for Zelensky. I pray for Biden. I trust you most of all. I pray for my family that you would just give us wisdom, that you would give us peace, that you would give us understanding. And I pray that for all these families here as well. That there just be peace, your peace. And that we can proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's in your holy name we pray.